You are listening to the Global CTE Podcast with your host, Sylvester Chisholm. All right. Uh... Welcome, my friend, to another episode of the Global CTE Podcast. I am your host, Sylvester Chisholm. This is the place where we interview the best, the brightest, the movers, the shakers, the people who are really pushing education forward. Today is no different. I have my good friend, Justin, right here today. Let me tell you about Justin. Justin is the Associate Professor of Digital Media in the Comparative Media Studies and Writing Department at MIT, and he's also the Director of the Teaching Systems Lab. He's the author of the new book, Iterate, The Secret to Innovation in Schools, as well as Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education. He is also the host of the Teach Lab podcast. Justin, welcome to the show. Sylvester, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, man, I'm, I'm excited based on all the, the work that you do at MIT, uh, really pushing education forward and, and connecting with uh, thought leaders around the world to find those best practices. But I'm curious, man, like, how do you get here? Like, what's the origin story? All right. So I'll tell you one origin story, which is that my first teaching job um, out of college was teaching wilderness medicine. Um, so I spent a lot of time doing outdoor stuff. I worked for this school called the Stone Hearth Outdoor Learning Opportunities or Solo. And so I taught these two classes. One was a two-day wilderness first aid class. And the other was a 10-day wilderness first responder class. So we teach them to outward bound leaders, to Knowles leaders, to college outdoor groups, to doctors that were going on missions, to like special forces soldiers, all kinds of people. Um, and a really interesting thing about teaching that class was I only taught two classes. And I taught them over and over and over again. So I might teach the same two classes like 40, 50 times a year or something like that. Like every weekend, once in the middle of the week, once in a 10 day. And it turns out that when you teach the same lessons over and over again, you can get really good at it. Like if you're a third grade teacher and there's some day that you're like, I'm going to introduce students to decimals. Like the next time you're going to introduce students to decimals is next October. It's like a, it's like a year hence. You might teach that lesson 30 times in your career. Um, but I was teaching the same lessons 30 or 40 times a year. You know, we teach this lesson, which is like, how, if someone breaks their leg in the woods, how do you make an improvised splint out of the stuff that you might carry around in your backpack? Um, and I would teach that 40 or 50 times a year. And every time I would teach it, I would make some little change. I would look at how my students did in the last class, what they understood, what they didn't, what they're good at, what they're not good at. And I would say, okay, I'm going to add a new joke to keep people's attention here. I'm going to draw a schematic of a broken bone on the blackboard a little bit differently here. I'm going to demonstrate a splinting technique a little bit differently here. And if you teach the same lessons over and over again, um, you can get really good at it. Um, you know, I, it was not uncommon for, for students to come up to me and be like, you know, man, I'm a physician and I've been in school for 20 plus years and this is the best class I've ever taken. Um, and it's you know, it's like, well, that's because I've been teaching this same thing over and over again. So it was something that really inspired um, my understanding of the power of iteration that when we um, in our teaching, when we can work on something and when we can like systematically try to improve it very just a little bit over and over again, that is our best chance of getting better. And there's a lot of research 
from computer science, from software engineering, from engineering design, from all kinds of, you know, entrepreneurship, all kinds of things that happen at MIT that confirm the same basic idea. Um, the, the very best work we do in all kinds of disciplines is when we can have the most possible cycles of trying something, getting in front of people, getting feedback and improving it. Man, I, I love it. That is a, a great story and, and so deeply connected to the title of this book. I think I love the like the intersection or the interplay between mastery from teaching something over and over, but finding those those elements within that lesson to elevate just a little, like you said, adding a joke here or there. Let's let's talk, iterate um, the, the secret, like what how to get. What made you decide to write this book? All right. So, so that, so I, then I become a high school history teacher in yeah. 2003. I'm relatively early. I had, I had, a, I had a classroom where every student had a laptop. All the laptops okay. were connected to the internet. They were all networked with each other. We have this software called first class, um, which basically did in 2003 on a server, everything that Google for education does now. Like we had collaborative documents. We could message everyone. Um, we, you know, this was not the first school in the United States to be a one-to-one -one program, but 2003 was like relatively early. Um, okay. And I had an entrepreneurial colleague named Tom DeCord who one summer like got a grant from the school to do a little research about how to teach history with technology. And the next summer he was like, okay, I'm offering workshops myself now. Now I'm gonna be the, the expert and teach other people. So he and I eventually founded this consultancy called EdTech Teacher, which worked with schools and districts on technology integration. And a thing that, that made me incredibly curious was you know, say between like 2007, 2017, there were a lot of schools that made a lot of technology purchases. They bought computers, they bought Chromebooks, they bought tablets, they bought computer labs, all kinds of stuff. You could go to many, many of those places and not see very many changes in teaching and learning. You could go to a lot of places where the smart boards were in the back of the room being used by whiteboards, where the kids had tablets, but they were just taking notes on their tablets. Like, you know, teaching, like, the stuff that we had for kids changed, but teaching and learning didn't change. Um, mm -hmm. There are a handful of other places you go to where you go, wow, there are really some different things that are happening here. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, uh, I remember a lot visiting a school in San Diego. Um, it was just a regular public school. Um, okay. And relatively early, soon after Google Docs had been released and across their middle school, they were doing some really different kinds of collaborative writing. They had um, students submitting multiple drafts, getting peer feedback, getting feedback from teachers, and not just like in one or two classrooms of teachers who were really excited about the technology, but seemingly like really across the whole school. Um, and I, I just kept thinking, why, what was different about this school, which had made some technology investments in teaching and learning was really actually changing, not just in one or two classrooms, but across the whole building versus the places that it seemed like they made big investments and things were stuck. Um, now to deepen this mystery, I then okay. said, so teachers, like, you know, what are, what are your principals doing to help with this? Like, what did they think of all this? And, and one of the teachers was like, oh, I don't think they know what we're doing. I was like, what? I'm in one of the only schools where I really feel like there's some really interesting changes happening. You're telling me that like the principals are just like making sure the air conditioning works and that the buses run on time. Yeah. There's a set of benign neglect. And it really helped me realize um, that the driving force behind innovation in schools is teacher leadership. There are just not enough administrators in any building 
to go into your science classroom and your English classroom and your art classroom and your math classroom and your Mandarin classroom and have different practices take hold. The only people who can do that work are teachers. And then there's some good research on this. So where do teachers learn? Where do they decide to adopt new practices? Well, if you interview teachers and ask them, why do you decide to adopt new pedagogical practices? The number one answer is other teachers. Teachers tell us that the main driver of changes in their practice is peer learning. So if you kind of put those two things together, that the main driver of practice is peer learning, that the only people who can really do experiments are teacher leadership, you realize just how central bottom-up leadership, ground-level leadership is for innovation to happen in schools. Where are the schools where things really change? Where there are places where teachers feel like um, they have some freedom, some flexibility, some resources to be able to try new experiments, and that they have the capacity to share what they're learning with their colleagues so that people who are willing to be a little bit more risk tolerant, a little more out there on the front edge can share what they're learning with their colleagues. Um, you know, it's a model in which like all the interesting, important action is happening in classrooms, in teacher peer learning groups. And that really, you know, makes us think about like, what is the role of leadership? Well, it's like making that cycle happen more effectively, more joyfully, more collaboratively with more support. Um, the metaphor that we use in the book is a little bit like a merry-go-round. Um, like, you know, in the playground where you got that little disc that spins and it's yeah. got the bars on it. Like the action is on the merry-go-round. The teachers who are doing the innovation are in the middle of there kind of spinning and swinging around and flying their hair out. And the job of the principal is to be out on the side, either like grabbing those bars and running in circles or slapping them along so that they keep going. Um, but it's recognizing that the only people who can really play the game are the ones who are there in the classroom. I, I love that teacher leadership. That's that's foundational. Can you offer some tangible best practices on creating that safe space for those teacher peer groups, for someone who's listening to this, like, okay, how can we elevate what we're doing in that space in our district or in our school? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So if you're talking to educators, then the thing to just say is that you are needed. Like if our schools, if our teaching and instruction are going to get better and we should try to get better because we have amazing kids in our schools and they deserve the best that we can offer them, um, then we need teacher leadership. We need people experimenting, iteratively improving. We need people sharing what they're learning with others. Um, what principals, you know, department heads, other people outside that can do, you know, maybe four big buckets are creating spaces and resources for research and development. Um, yeah. How do you give teachers time, space, research, money, encouragement to be able to try new things? Um, how do you create sort of spaces for small scale peer learning, like a few teachers connecting with each other? Two of the best practices for that are looking at student work together. So if you're doing cool new things, seeing how new things actually lead to different kinds of student production, um, and then instructional rounds or peer observations or whatever you call visiting each other's classrooms, um, giving, you know, I, I, you know, it's as simple as like an assistant principal saying, I will do my paperwork in your classroom while your kids are doing a quiz or a project so that you can go and see somebody else's room and so that these projects can spread. So then you need some institutional peer learning. You need times and places where um, teachers can share their work with each other. A simple first step is look through all of the meeting agenda that you have coming up in the next few weeks. What are all of the bureaucratic administrative things that you can write down on a piece of paper and hand to people? And how can you turn that time over to teaching and learning? 
Like how can our faculty meetings, our department meetings, how can more of that time be to professional learning communities, whatever it is, how can that time be devoted to sharing good, exciting, interesting, new, still being worked on teaching and learning. And then, you know, the sort of fourth big bucket, all this is in the book, by the way, you don't have to memorize all this. You just have to buy the book and it's all going to be there. But the fourth big bucket is have, is how do you make sure that this experimentation kind of happens with some alignment? So if every teacher is kind of doing cool things in their own direction, maybe classrooms get better, but grade level teams don't get better. Schools don't get better. Um, in order for a whole faculty to be improving together, um, there needs to be some kind of shared instructional language. There needs to be some way that we agree to talk about teaching and learning. And there's lots of good instructional languages out there, like understanding by design, teaching for understanding, universal design for learning. One's not really better than each other, another, like any of them you could pick and have people be able to talk to each other. And then have some kind of shared vision of, okay, in the next two or three years, what we really want to get better in our elementary schools are these few things. Um, and they have to be, you know, small enough that they're tractable, but big enough that lots of different teachers with lots of different backgrounds can feel like they can be part of them. So there's lots more details about that in the book, but it's really creating the conditions where teachers feel like, okay, part of my job is to be iteratively improving, trying new things, um, not thinking so much about like huge five-year strategic plans, but thinking about, you know, in the next six-week marking period, like what is going to be the thing that I'm putting in place that's going to make my instruction a little bit better? Um, and then how am I going to have opportunities to share with my peers so that we're all learning from these experiments and it's not just sitting in one classroom? Man, I, th th thank you for sharing that in such depth uh, <laughs> and for for referencing referencing that Yes, it is all in iterate. Just get the book and then you can go through this on your own. <laughs> um, you have three approaches that you mentioned in the book, uh, the cycle of experiment and experience, design thinking for leading and learning and the collaborative innovation cycle. Is there one that you believe is more transformative than the others or any, no, any no. If you, if, you, you know, if I'm if I'm selling you on iteration, I got to give you a few different things to be able to try out here. I've got to give yes. you a few. So the things that I was just describing to you is the cycle of experiment and peer learning. Um, okay. That is kind of this model of how teacher leadership drives change in schools. Um, design thinking for leading and learning draws from a lot of my colleagues at MIT and engineering and entrepreneurship and other places around campus. And sort of ask the question like, okay, so if you wanted to do more experiments in your teaching and instruction. If you wanted to do that more systematically, how might you do that? And there's a lot that we've learned over the past 20 or 30 years about human-centered design um, and sort of sensible ways of thinking about how we change and improve things. So design thinking for leading and learning gives some advice and suggestions about that. Um, and then the collaborative innovation cycle, sort of, you know, if, if the design thing for leading and learning really zooms in the classroom level, the collaborative innovation cycle sort of zooms way out to the school and district level. And it says, okay, um, if we're going to get a whole community of people to be kind of trying to experiment and innovate in, in similar directions, if we're going to pull our oars in the same direction as we're experimenting, how are we going to sync up to do that? You know, and it really starts with bringing people together around ideas they care about. It says that like communities that do a good job collaborating with one another, um, they, they feel like the things that they're working on are connected to their strengths, to their core values, to the things that they think are most important for them. You know, they tend not to be, um, you know, 
superintendents, principals coming from the outside and say, guess what, everybody? We're all, like, no one has ever been to a faculty meeting where a principal gets in front of everybody and goes, hey, everybody, we're all going to work on this now. And all the faculty like raise their hands and clap and like, yeah, we're all going to do this now. But that's just not how, I mean, there are a handful of places with really charismatic leaders where that might work. But in most right. places, when we get excited about working on things together, it's because they're connected to our core values. Um, the other thing that I think is in the collaborative innovation cycle and really woven throughout Iterate um, okay. is that, you know, I think people get excited about innovation. I get excited about innovation because it's new, it's joyful, it brings improvement, but it also is really important to recognize um, that any kind of change involves conflict. Any kind of change involves loss. Like if we want to have new practices, we're probably saying goodbye to old practices. Um, if we want to bring together new things, we probably are not going to start the day all agreeing about what those new things should be. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be disagreement. There's going to be tension. And so figuring out how we work through those challenges together is a, is a huge part of innovation and iteration as well. Justin, let me, I, I want to lean in on something you said on, from that design thinking for leading and learning. We, we really push like our learning community to be experiential, to make real world projects as much as possible, like especially in CTE education. Mm -hmm. How, talk to me about, give me something on how can teachers be more entrepreneurial in the classroom with, you know, from that design thinking for leading and learning aspect? Yeah, well, I mean, let's start by saying that some of the best answers to this question are conditions that are outside of individual teachers' control. Um, we know, for instance, that in the United States, we ask teachers to be directly in front of children more hours than in other developed countries around the world. So if you, you, know, if you were a teacher in Europe in a variety of places um, or in different places in Asia, you would have fewer hours a day that you were directly teaching students and you would have more hours a day that you were collaborating, that you were doing planning, that you were doing all the extra stuff that innovation takes. Um, so there are things that we can do outside of schools to make that possible. But even within the world that we have, um, there are, you know, in California, they have a role they call teachers on special assignment where they take away a couple of, of, of teachers teaching periods in order to give them other responsibilities. There's other ways we can pay people to come in in the summer. We can pay people for after, you know, there's other ways to compensate people for their time. Um, then, you know, those are sort of big structural things, but I think one kind of like thing that we can do tomorrow, individual mindset change is we have to help people in schools think about cycles of change in shorter periods of time. Um, it's very difficult, you know, a thing that which is just hard about schools is like our classes are a year long. Our school buildings keep people for five years. Our system takes 13, 13 plus years. That's just like a really long time frame to be thinking about. Um, whereas, you know, if you look at a lot of software engineering, industrial development, like a big push in the last um, decade or two has been to try to reorganize innovation around these sprints that are two weeks long or three weeks long um, that we, you know, and so some of this I describe as the someday Monday dilemma. Like we have, we okay. want to have people have a big ambitious vision of what things could be really different and a lot better. You know, just, I mean, your someday vision there was about project-based learning, about kids being engaged in what they're doing, interest-driven. Um, getting there for schools is probably a multi-year process. So then we've got to think about what are we going to do on Monday? What is like one thing that we can try, test, implement, evaluate? It's not going to do everything we want it to do. 
but we want that one thing that we're implementing on Monday to feel like, okay, that can be kind of the beginning of a spiraling up. Here's one thing that we're going to try. Oh, it's failed. Good thing that we didn't put too much effort into it. Let's throw it away and try the next. Oh, the next thing worked really good. Okay, let's do that plus this. The next Monday, let's do that plus this plus this. That's what the sort of spiral figure on the cover is meant to evoke. Um, this idea that you sort of start with these like smaller, sketchier ideas and over time um, they build and grow. So there's lots of specific ideas about how to think that. I was actually just talking with um, an educator in a school in Hawaii who said that um, a thing that they realized about their school that really helped was the whole faculty sort of agreed to kind of organize their teaching around these six week periods. Um, And like, so sort of everyone's units were six weeks long or there were two, three week units, but they had, so that sort of every six weeks, if you wanted to make it kind of like, there was always a time to make a change in the school. There was always a time to think like, okay, like, you know, that period ended, here's the thing I learned, here's the next thing that I'm gonna put into practice. But I think a big part of Iterate is trying to help teachers keep that huge someday vision, like keep big audacious goals, but to think about tackling them in shorter iterative cycles that build on each other. That that is so powerful and and so true because I know so many teachers or or school leaders get excited by the big vision, but then they can get overwhelmed by the implementation. And I like what you're saying of making it into smaller bite-sized chunks. Like, let's move the ball. What can we do today? What can we do now? And um, I like that six week. Um, cycle there, and that's that's that really falls into that collaboration part that you were talking about. I'm I'm curious, man, with with your work and over 20 years of experience and uh and all the work you're doing with the teaching systems lab. What what other insights have you come across? Let's say in the last year that that have maybe blown your mind, like oh wow, this is a new way, a new approach, a different way of thinking. I'm curious. Well, I don't, I don't know if this is a brand new one, but I do feel okay. like this is one that sort of falls off the, the wayside a lot. Um, what, are, what are the characteristics of communities that are really good at working together and improving? Um, here's one of them. They have fun with it. Um, people who take joy in collaborating with their colleagues and making schools better, they do more of it. You know, in so many places, if we're asking teachers to get better, in a lot, like we're asking them to do that sort of beyond what's in their contract, maybe beyond what's in their contracted hours. And so why would you do that work? Well, part of why teachers do that work is because of the, you know, inherent, uh, their professionalism and the values that they place in their students, but it's way easier to do it if it's fun. Um, and so I think really sort of centering joy in this process and saying that we've got to think about like how these meetings, how these teacher connections, how these planning times, they can, they can have good work that's happening. They can be serious. They can be based in research. They can be ambitious. Um, but if they're joyful, if they're fun, if teachers really think, you know, if they go home thinking to themselves, man, working together with my colleagues is a joy. Um, those are places where teaching and learning gets better. Man, I love it. That's a great answer. Final question for you, Justin. Um, my last question, I, I normally ask every guest, what's your vision for the future of CTE, career tech education? But I, I want to shift it a little. Talk to me about your vision for the future of CTE, but as it relates to Iterate and how our CTE listeners maybe can apply Iterate uh, to their practice. 
Well, what I mean, I feel like one of the joys, this is, I don't know if this is true in every part of career and technical education, but I think there are many, many places in career and technical education where if we talk about design thinking, engineering design, there are teachers who are going to go, that is what my class is all about. Like if right. you came to my class in software engineering, if you came to my class in arts and design, if you came to my class, you know, in auto engineering or manufacturing, like, what do we do in manufacturing? Like, we take a thing, we try it, we see if it works. If it doesn't, we try it again. Um, right. And so part of actually why we named design thinking, design thinking for leading and learning is the idea um, that there are ways, um, design thinking is a way of teaching systematic problem solving to young people. Um, it's a powerful set of tools, particularly refined in software and product design, but can be useful in lots of different places. Design thinking for leading and learning means we can do it with our students and we can also do it with faculty with ourselves. We can say, okay, this is a powerful set of tools for us to think about how we collaborate with each other's faculty, with leaders, with community members, with families, with students to also be continuously improving what we're doing. So I think, you know, one of my favorite things about teaching some of this stuff um, to, I think almost all educators have good intuitions about iterative innovation and design. You know, so English and history teachers are really good at imagining new futures, at empathizing with people and their needs. Um, engineering faculty, science faculty, math faculty are good at generating hypotheses, thinking about systematic ways of testing them, getting feedback on the, like we all know how to do this stuff. What I think iterate, hopefully what iterate will do for people is, is have you read through it and go, there's a whole bunch in here that I already know that I'm already doing. And this is a systematic way of pulling it together so that me and my colleagues can do some of this work um, more efficiently, more joyfully, more in sync with one another. I love it. Collaboration and joy. I love it, Justin. Hey, um, if anyone wants to connect with you, tell us where, where should they go? Um, if you want to buy Iterate, go to iteratebook.com and we'll give you a whole bunch of links of places to do that. And if you want to keep up um, with the work, um, if you go to tsl.mit.edu, Teaching Systems Lab, tsl.mit.edu, there's a place to sign up for a newsletter there. And that's where we usually keep people up to date about what we're doing. Sylvester, it's super it. fun to join you today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, man. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. That sounds good. Peace. Hey, if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you share with a friend. Don't be selfish. Justin dropped a lot of great gems here. And go and check out his new book, iterate until the next podcast episode remember you don't have to be great to get started but you have to get started to be great peace thank you for listening to the global cte podcast be sure to like and subscribe to be the first to know about future episodes